We have a chat with Trump's man in London. I understand Donald Trump and the way he handles himself, you know, probably better than most people. Macron and May talk defence and security at Sandhurst. The equivalent of a prison cell forces accommodation is called into question. And why Churchill's speech is getting standing ovations in cinemas. It's almost a year since the inauguration of Donald Trump as the President of the United States. In the last 12 months, we've seen a seismic change in the leadership style of the Commander-in-Chief. Trump still hasn't visited the UK. Only last week, he cancelled his trip to open the new US Embassy. So how are relations with Britain's closest military ally? Who better to ask than the US Ambassador to Britain, Woody Johnson? I think they work about as closely as you can get at this point. You know, we... We're embedded in each other's. We trust each other enough so that we have people, you know, from the RAF embedded in our in our services and vice versa. So we train together. We design this plane together. Uh, we do. We've been in combat missions together. Uh, General Mattis, when he was over here, said, "I never go into battle without my without my friends and associates and other countries," and he means that. So the the British add so much to the safety and security of the world, as does the US, and as a partnership, we're that much stronger. I suppose what's really important to the British military is that when it comes to world affairs, that Britain and the US see eye to eye if they're going to be allies working together. How, what can you do practically to help that relationship? I think what I can do is, what I can do is, is explain what's happening in the U.S., perhaps over here, and translate back and forth and set up an understanding that can help and facilitate things. If there's, if there's any flies in the ointment, they said to speak, you know, get those out and let's proceed full speed forward. When, when you talk about flies in the ointment, I'm curious to know what it's like being an American diplomat when you have a president who regularly says the most undiplomatic things. Do you ever pick up the phone and say, what did you say that for? Why did you tweet that? You know, I've, well, it's interesting. I mean, you're not, <clears throat> yours was original, but I've heard this before. And um, having known Donald Trump and his family for, I think, about 35 years, I understand, I understand Donald Trump and the way he handles himself, you know, probably better than most people. And what I would suggest... So if, what is that, then? Um, just his personality and how he gets things done and how he, he looks at opportunity and how he has his pulse on public opinion uh, pretty accurately. I mean, it was pretty amazing that he did what he did. And he beat, I don't know, there's 20 guys on the stage and women when he started the campaign. And one by one... They were eliminated by a guy who would never run. So how do you communicate it to the UK, what Donald Trump's all about? I think if you have confidence, if you look down the road at the best interest of your country and you are interested in security and prosperity, I would have confidence that Donald, Donald Trump, President Trump, despite what the, the newspapers are telling you and so on, I would... You can read the newspapers, but I would have confidence in you're going to go in the right direction. Mm. 
I've known the man for a long time. I've seen what he's accomplished. I know his employees, his kids. And, you know, I, I just would have a lot of confidence he's going to do that, despite what, what you read in the newspapers. And it's almost um, a year since the 45th president had his inauguration. At that time, he mentioned America first. And at first, you kind of thought that that meant that America was perhaps stepping back from being the policeman of the world, that America was perhaps not going to intervene overseas so much in conflicts abroad. But we've seen lots of very aggressive, almost warmongering rhetoric from Donald Trump, particularly against people like Kim Jong-un from North Korea. How long do you think it might take before the war of words might translate into military action? Well, I can't predict that. And, but I, I will say, you know, the America First statement... Um, is true. I mean, I think he wants to focus on what's good for the war America. But that doesn't mean the exclusion of everybody else, because he knows that's a shared world. And so the world has to be prosperous to make America prosperous. And so that's one thing in terms of <clears throat> in terms of the military, um, in terms of what he says. I think a lot of what he says, um, certainly from his base, and from other people, are they're, they're saying, you know, these are these are statements that should have been made, mm -hmm. should be made, maybe not in the and out of context. They maybe sound a little different, but he's asking questions. He's trying to move the ball forward in security and prosperity, in a way that I think you have to look down the road and see what is it is it going to yield better lives for people, safer lives. Um, uh, I think the answer is yes. Uh, and briefly, I know he's got a clean bill of health from the doctor at the White House. Um, what's the truth about Donald Trump? Is he unstable? Is he a stable genius? Is he uncontrollable? Is he unreasonable? What is the truth? Well, he's the president of the United States. That's so, the truth. <laughs> that is the truth. And I'll believe what the doctor says. I mean, he doesn't smoke or drink. So, which I think those are two good habits not to have, <laughs> generally. And I think he... Um, uh, the doctor gave him some advice, probably advice he gives a lot of people. But he's in great health and he is a president. That was the US ambassador to Britain, Woody Johnson. Well, I'm joined by Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham and Christopher Lee, BFBS Defence Analyst. Hello to both of you. Um, Scott Lucas, um, this guy hasn't got a diplomatic background. He's still the owner of the New York Jets NFL team. What do you think of what he had to say? Oh, I mean, Woody Johnson got this job in large part because he's been a longtime associate and ally of Donald Trump. And so you treat Woody Johnson's words as being cheerleading for the president rather than, as you were trying to get him to talk about, a really shrewd assessment of where we are with U.S.-U.K. relations and indeed U.S. relations with the world. I'd say two things very briefly. I'd say I actually agree with Woody Johnson on one thing, which is that the U.S.-U.K. relationship relies on institutions. Uh, it relies on the militaries, the intelligence services, State Department and Foreign Office, economic institutions. But secondly, those institutions are having to operate not with the assistance of Donald Trump, but despite Donald Trump. Uh, you'll notice that Woody Johnson did not give you a single concrete example of Trump making a constructive statement. And I think you and I could go through a whole list of actually what have been destabilizing and sometimes even destructive statements Trump has made about U.S. foreign policy U.S. economic policy, or more generally, putting into question American values. And while Trump is in the White House, you're going to see Americans and British institutions both 
having to do firefighting to make sure that things stay on an even keel, despite what he might come out with next on Twitter. And as the ambassador, what do you think the big issue he's dealing with at the moment? What is he telling the State Department about us? Well, you know, and again, I don't want to discredit Woody Johnson, but in many ways, the ambassadorial post is one which is as a representative of the United States and to portray image rather than to deal with the concrete substance of what is happening between the U.S. and the U.K. If he can shake hands, if he can present a smiling face, and if he doesn't say anything to add to Trump's destruction, that's all well and good. And how do you, how do you see it, Scott, the concrete thing of what is happening between the U.S. and the U.K.? Well, I think you're, you're dealing with two, well, a number of important things. But one is, look, the fundamental for the U.K. is Brexit, that the U.K. is going to have to adjust not only economically, but to a very changed political role in the world if it leaves the EU uh, beyond this mythical trade agreement, which is not going to happen for years with the U.S., it's going to have to still keep channels open in terms of military, um, political, economic affairs. From the U.S. side, I think that's a real question, and that is beyond Donald Trump and whatever he comes off with on the top of his head. Where does the United States see itself going in an area like the Middle East? Where does it see itself going in Asia? Is it going to be part of multilateral economic agreements or is it going to retreat? And as it makes those decisions, mm. British input is going to be very, very important. And we see today, we see the news today that we talk about is America's position in the Middle East that as far as Syria is concerned, post-ISIS, uh, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, is saying the US wants to have a presence remaining in Syria, which um, the Syrians are calling an act of aggression. Well, you know, the Assad regime is going to reject any American involvement in the conflict. Put that to the side. The real question is, what does the Americans mean by military presence? I think they're talking about a presence in terms of a sideshow, which is, oh, if the Islamic State shows up again, they want to combat it. Uh, they're worried about an extension of Iranian influence. But I don't think Tillerson's speech did anything to cut to the core of what has been at the heart of the conflict since 2011. And that is the Assad regime is trying to crush the opposition is bombing, carrying out sieges to do so, will the United States finally take a stand against Assad doing that? Or will they do something which actually draws a line, not to say that Assad must be overthrown, but that in some ways there has to be some type of protection of everyone in Syria, because without that, there's no way we ever get to political talks that lead to a resolution. Christopher Lee, uh, going forward beyond Brexit, how do you think American foreign policy will affect the UK? Um, it'll affect the UK the way it has always affected the UK. There are times when they both have the same interests, and there's also the times when the United Kingdom, especially, um, feels that it makes some sort of contribution. There's an actual sense in government, ever since Churchill, I suppose, that the United Kingdom and America are the closest of all the allies. And when people talk about this devilish thing, the, the special relationship, it actually means when it needs to be special, that's when it's a relationship. So you've got that bit moved out. Um, Talking earlier this week to a guy called Paul Stairs, who of uh, the Council on Foreign uh, uh, Affairs, Foreign Relations. Iscat. Iscat, yeah. Um, he was saying, you know, they've just presented the uh, 30, 30 things that the, the administration or America should know about the security of the world for the next, or has known for the, for the, for the previous year. Um, what was quite interesting about it is that he, he and his people were sort of saying, well, one thing is very clear, that we're quite, most of the time we haven't spotted when there's a problem coming up. The other thing is that everything he said was not at all new, um, and, and that this had gone to, uh, to the White House 
Um, but the chances of it ever being drawn to, let's say, the president's attention and the president actually understanding what he was reading or not reading uh, pretty pretty slim. In other words, you have this thing that we've always worried about if you happen, don't happen to be America, uh, an, an American, is that the American president frightens us probably more than anything else and that he is, I say this in not in a kindly way, but he doesn't know anything. Um, and he hasn't had the right time and hasn't the effort and cannot intellectually read in to the world. Um, mm. You put that lot together and it remains a very scary place indeed. Scott, you, you, earlier you said that um, what was important was that the, or what was happening was that the British American institutions were, were continuing to work closely in spite of what Donald Trump may or may not do. How important or how much of an effect do you think what he says and what he tweets and what he does actually has long term? Will it all be in spite of him and actually there is nothing to worry about? Oh, no. I mean, you have to worry about it on a daily basis. Rex Tillerson, in an unguarded moment yesterday, said that the State Department and he as Secretary of State have to react almost every day to what Trump says on Twitter to work that into U.S. foreign policy. Now, not, that's not the way to make foreign policy. That's not the way to make military policy by reacting to what the president has said in 140 or 280 characters. So you always have America and Britain and other allies that are having to spend valuable parts of the day trying to do damage control or trying to reinterpret what is happening. And it, it's just not an ideal situation. But Christopher's right. As long as Trump is in the White House, you cannot expect him to change. You can't expect him to become literate about the world. And so you sort of have to treat him as a figurehead and hope you can keep him contained while you do the important work beyond him. All right. Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, living quarters still aren't up to scratch and why people are giving Churchill a standing ovation in 2018. We shall never surrender! America is the take-it-for-granted ally, but there's always a public suspicion about France. Today, the French and British governments showed their political and military alliance is in it for the long haul. Prime Minister May and President Macron had lunch at a Maidenhead gastropub and then went to RMA Sandhurst for the fanfares and the headlines. Well, let's talk to the Deputy Director of the Royal United Services Institute, Jonathan Isle. Hello, Jonathan. Good to speak to you today. Um, let's stick to the military side of this. The UK is further helping France with its counter-terrorism operations in Mali. There's more to this than simply three Chinooks, though, isn't there? There certainly is. And there is a 50-year uh, treaty, defence treaty, of a kind that Britain has with no other European power. There is a very intimate uh, uh, relationship in terms of the development and testing of nuclear weapons. Again, something that we cannot have with any other power. And there is a commitment from both sides, especially at the time of very scarce uh, resources, to actually invest as much as possible in cooperative projects. So on almost every level, there is a genuine desire for military cooperation. The president sees European defence changing shape in the long run. Importantly, the UK and France will be at the head of that development. We talk about the special relationship with America, but the real special relationship is clearly from this meeting between the USA and France. 
Indeed, and uh, there's, uh, let us not forget there are some key questions that still need to be decided. Britain will be leaving the European Union, but will most certainly Beg your pardon, not UK and France, I should have said, not USA. <laughs> Do you want to repeat? No, I just said it. Don't, go ahead, please, Jonathan. Yes, absolutely. And uh, one, one should not forget that there is a lot of critical questions that will need to be decided on this in the next few months. Uh, Britain will be leaving the European Union but will not be leaving NATO. So there is the matter about how the British forces, which next to the French are the only forces with the capability for expeditionary operations, how the British forces will continue to plug into a European operation should there be one in the future without interfering with what the European Union may do and without giving the European Union a veto on NATO operations. It is doable, but it requires a very careful political planning. Christopher Lee, how important do you think today's meeting is? I think it's important. Uh, I think it's important visually um, because you've got the two styles. You've got, I think, that President Macron has, has caught some of the imagination of the of the British public, he, he you know he's the right sort of figure to have around. And what happens next year is another matter, and so that's important. But also, he is thinking long term, long haul on this. He's thinking long term in in the sense of what happens after Brexit. He's thinking long term about the the reshaping of NATO uh, of sorry of Europe, and he was talking yesterday. He said, you know, uh, Europe is going to change. And it will change within its institutional format. It will, it will change in what its ambitions are. And it will change the way that it reacts uh, deep down to how the world goes. And he said, I think that the United Kingdom will be standing right alongside us, shoulder to shoulder, as part of this change. And that is the sort of, that is, that is the response to some extent of those people, say the Germans, Italians or whatever, who say we've got to have a very good European uh, force um, because everything else is changing elsewhere. Uh, and then people say, no, hang on, we've got NATO. And that's actually doing the best job that we've actually seen thus far. So I think, think long term, think about these. Uh, this meeting won't be the same as, say, the one that was in Saint-Malo. Uh, which decided all sorts of things, uh, how France and the United Kingdom go ahead. But you know, you know, Jonathan's got this absolutely spot on. It's a 50-year agreement with the United Kingdom, and even in these times, an agreement like that develops. You look at the aircraft carrier; there's mm. a whole load of French industry in it. You jo look at pilots, French pilots flying British uh, RAF aircraft. It is much closer than people would have it. So, so it, it will be developed, this relationship. Uh, Jonathan Isle, what do you think can happen next? Well, I think uh, there's still some, some, some important obstacles that need to be ironed out. The French have put up a proposal for a European Rapid Reaction Force. The British are still not very clear how it's going to operate. Uh, the French also have some doubts about how... It, the British are interested in providing security in Africa. So it's not a trouble-free relationship. What I think is key is, as just as we've heard a few seconds ago, there is a realization in France that Britain's departure from the European Union is a key seminal moment for the European Union. Mm -hmm. And if Europe is not going to be hobbled, it will need to harness British capabilities in one shape or another. All right, Jonathan. 
Canal from the Royal United Services Institute. We'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Now, Carillion is the largest provider of facilities management to the Ministry of Defence, operating between £700 million to £1 billion worth of contracts. But now the construction firm has collapsed and questions have been asked about its competence and the state of forces accommodation, which is run through Carillion Amy. Well, retired group captain Bill Mann is the director of the RAF Families Federation and made his views clear to MPs at a committee meeting this week. We've got young airmen joining the Air Force who are highly qualified, well qualified, technically uh, adept, um, being sent to work on fifth generation aircraft when it arrives um, and, and being, being accommodated in the equivalent of a prison cell. Well, General Sir Richard Barron's former commander of Joint Force Command has told SITREP that he and other former service chiefs raised the issue with the MOD when they were in office. One of the things I did is I, I wrote to the Secretary of State for Defence, Michael Fanner, and the Ministry of Defence and said that we had had enough of this. And we need to remember that this drama had gone on for many, many years. But the fact is we had single servicemen and families living in accommodation which was by any definition of the word, shocking and unacceptable. And, and we were failing to do anything about it and our people were saying to us uh, that wasn't good enough. And they were right. Well, what did the MOD say about that letter? Well, it's a very complex problem. We, we need to recognise that the, the amount of money that's been made available for service housing for more than 20 years has not been enough. We've been dealing with a, a programme of, of, of galloping obsolescence which we couldn't really stop. We then amplified it by some poor contracting arrangements, and then some poor delivery. And, and I think it's important to recognise there were some people in Carillion, Amy, uh, in Defence, who were working really, really hard to try and fix this. They were battling with not enough money. But there were also some examples of really, really poor performance from Carillion, Amy, and the contractors that they employed. I mean, yeah, just shocking. And it's a view shared by former Defence Minister Mark Francois. I recently did a report for the Prime Minister on recruitment into the armed services, which laid out a number of challenges that, that we've got. And clearly being able to provide a good housing service, you know, is an inducement to people to want to serve. So we know that the army is under-recruited. We know that we've got to do better than we are. And I think being able to improve the standard of housing maintenance, if we can do it, I think, you know, would be an added part of the package and it also would be important for retention to stop people from leaving. Well, the government has stressed that the collapse of Carillion has no direct impact on defence or the services provided to the armed forces and their families, with Amy taking full control of the contract. But General Barron says Carillion's woes have no bearing on the wider issue. He thinks housing should be run by the military for the military. Nothing the government says will make up for the fact that if they don't put enough money into service accommodation, they'll not fix it and modernise it and, and maintain it. So there has to be more money and then there has to be, I think, more efficient arrangements. And I will argue very strongly that part of this is, is returning the responsibility to brigade and garrison and unit commanders and station commanders so that they have the money to buy a service and that we then use people who understand the service community to make sure things are prioritised and get done. So one of the things I did was I reinstated on the black economy, if you like, estate wardens. So we had serious, experienced warrant officers who were given the responsibility of knowing their estate and liaising with Korean Amy to get it fixed. That made a marked difference. And I think we're going to have to revisit how local commanders and their staff are given the money and the responsibility for fixing their estate and allowed to get on with these really quite simple things. Well, Alex Griffiths is digital editor for Forces News. Hello, Alex. You've had quite a lot of comments on this story on our digital channels. 
We, we have indeed, and it seems that every time we, we post a story relating to housing or accommodation that our comment sections um, go wild. So I've just pulled out a selection that really demonstrate the overall feeling. Um, the first one is from um, Alistair Pugh, and he says that servicemen and women and their families have been shamefully treated for many years, frequently living in accommodation that is totally unfit for purpose. If the MOD were a private company, they would quite literally be made to pay. Many personnel are living in poorly heated, overcrowded conditions with inadequate services, even at a basic level. It's unbelievably shocking treatment and a gross insult to personnel who are already significantly under-rewarded. Um, as I say, that is um, a sentiment that is shared by a lot of people on our Facebook page. Um, Jim Ga- uh, Gillinders says, married quarters and single accommodation is in the worst state ever. With that in mind, I'm sure Carillion won't be missed. Um, and Marie Ward says, let's hope military housing will now improve. Families have been suffering for too many years because of Carillion. Um, And this one from Paul Stephen Adamson is a personal experience of his. He says they left me with no heating or hot water for over a month because it wasn't a priority. They told me I could get my own plumber out if I wanted it fixing straight away, but they would not reimburse me. Um, And we have contacted some of these people and a tenant who has been left so unhappy with her housing and he's thinking of now renting outside of military accommodation. Um, She's lived in 14 separate different living quarters um, and she now wants to rent outside um, and she's written an article for our website about her experiences in military accommodation and so you can head to forces.net slash news to read that full article it's a really interesting read well uh, christopher when you hear those kind of complaints from people when you have the government stressing that the collapse of carillion will have no direct impact on defense or the services provided to the armed forces it's not very encouraging is it it's not i mean it's it's not a question of you won't it will stop people joining the armed forces well it won't uh, unless it's word of mouth um, but what it will do, it will stop people staying. Let me give you one example. I mean, the last, the, the last uh, one that uh, Alex was talking about then, about uh, families living in accommodation like this. Okay, you send a battalion off on a six-month rulemont somewhere, like Afghanistan, Iraq, or whatever, leaving behind a wife and a couple of toddlers in really bad accommodation. Mm-hmm. And it happens. And it's not just the worst case pulling out. You imagine the the anxieties mm-hmm. of the guy working six a thousand miles away, as well as a wife who maybe isn't geared up to sort of complaining, isn't geared up to getting things done. Mm-hmm. It's just geared up to the normal daily routine of having a couple of kids and living in terrible accommodation. Now that is in two thousand and eighteen. Quite shocking, isn't it, Alex? Just from your experience of working in, in in this part of the newsroom, how how great a response is there to this kind of issue? Well, every every as I say, every time we post something online, our comment sections go mad with people, and they're very similar comments. There is a lot of people who who aren't happy with the accommodation they're living in, um, and. It, it does have an effect on retention by, by the look of our comments. Um, Karen Lavis is another commenter who says, look after the lads and lassies you already have. They are treated appallingly. They need better pay and living condition. My son had rats in his accommodation. Mm. And it, it's it's things like that that really do have an impact. And Richard, Bar- Richard Barons has got it right. Mm. Give it back to the regiments. All right, on that note, we'll leave it for now. I'm sure we'll be returning to this subject. Alex, thank you. Now, finally, a little bit of Churchill. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing ground. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! 
For without victory, there can be no survivor. Well, if you haven't seen it, that was the official film trailer of Darkest Hour. The film starring Gary Oldman as the British Prime Minister has caused cinema goers to take to their feet for a standing ovation witnessed by our very own Christopher Lee. What's going on, Christopher? Uh, OK, let me tell you, last night, so I, I go to the cinema to see this, and this shot, this, this, this section comes right at the end, and it's Churchill who has been hammered by his own side, and Halifax says, you know, I'm going to quit, etc., and he says, OK, I'm going to tell the public what it's all about. Uh, there were 40, just over 40 kids at this thing, at, this, at the cinema last night. They were from three schools, and they'd been sent because they're doing the period in history. When this, I, we will fight them on the beaches, and we will never surrender, <laughs> right? They were on their feet. You won't get the Oscar for that, Christopher. Don't let Sorry, me know. On. Don't let me know. <laughs> Listen, um, they were on their feet. They were applauding. They were cheering. So afterwards, I said to them, why? And they said, well, he was great, wasn't he? And I said, what's it all about? And one of these kids turned around to me. He said, he was a proper leader, wasn't he? And that's something that... There's something deep in there to sort of discover for ourselves. But in the United States... The whole of America is getting up and applauding Churchill. Mm, That is all we have time for this week. Don't forget to check out our video on Forces TV Facebook page or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate Chabot. I'll be back same time next week. But for now, bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Military honours for 